Welcome back to Beyond Basketball, a podcast where we talk about the intersection of sports and culture. My name is Jahan, and with me is Rob. Rob, how are you doing today? I'm good, Jahan. How you doing, brother? Rob Smith here. Glad to, to be on with you again. This is an important conversation we're having today. Absolutely. Every conversation we have is going to be an important one, but I think this one is really uh, at the forefront of everyone's mind right now. It absolutely is. But. Uh, as far as how I'm doing, I'm doing great because I, uh, I'm, I'm an in-the-field reporter now. I'm For Beyond Basketball, I'm in the field covering the Bucks. I just saw them play in Portland. They had a huge game nice. against the Blazers. Yeah. The team looked good, scored 137 points, which is apparently the season high. And then uh, the next day, they did, it, they did the exact same thing again against the Clippers. So Bucks are looking good. We're looking good. Yeah. How about yourself? How are you doing, Rob? I'm doing really good. My my son just had a 14th birthday. He's been playing a little bit of basketball, getting his appetite wet for some hoops. He's got a little basketball Jones now, so he's uh, he's, right. he's got the bug. So I'm, I've done my part, you know. <laughs> future, future Bucks legend in the making there. Uh, well, I wouldn't say all that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I hope so, but you know, so you know, I don't want to live my dreams through my child. You know, we see that a lot of out course. here. Of course, yeah. You know, maybe he wants to be a Bulls legend. We don't want to get ahead of him. I'm, I'm just going for lawyer. You know. Okay. We can, okay. We, yeah, we can get the lawyer. You know, I hang out with lawyers. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> I, I've heard about that. Yeah. Uh, I guess he can be a courtroom <laughs> legend then. Yeah, that'd be good. All right. Uh, one thing we should mention before we get into this episode, though, is um, the our guest from our very first episode, Pastor Walt Lanier. He's got an exciting new opportunity. We just want to congratulate him on that. Yeah, you know, he's going to be the executive director of ALEM, African American Leadership Alliance of Milwaukee. And, you know, it's a great opportunity for Pastor Lanier. He comes with so much experience and it's just an op- a great opportunity. Really excited to see where he takes it. And I'm sure MATC will miss him, but this is a very exciting opportunity for Pastor Lanier. And, you know, we wish him all the best. So hopefully we can have him back on sometime to talk about it. Absolutely. We certainly will. Congratulations, Pastor. But in the meantime, the most important thing going on in this country right now, I think we can all agree, has been going on for a couple of years now. It's the COVID-19 pandemic. And in light of that and all the variants we got, all the vaccination talk, uh, public health has been one of the most important sectors of the war against COVID. And we have a very special guest to talk about that, someone who is deeply involved in public health in the Milwaukee community, and uh, someone who can hopefully shed some light on the issues we've been dealing with, issues we will have to deal with as a result of this pandemic. You know, it's a really important conversation for us to have, because as much as we are still uh, grappling with the pandemic, we are also in different phases of the pandemic. And so it's really mm-hmm. important mm-hmm. for us to mm-hmm. assess where we've been, the challenges that are still with us, the challenges that lie ahead, and at the same time, make some sense of the world we're in, given that we have vaccines and we have a, a, a better understanding to some degree of how to manage our lives. You know, So it, it's, it's important for us to not run away from this topic and to, to discuss it head on. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, before you get worried that we're turning into a, uh, a news podcast, we've we got plenty of basketball to talk about. 
Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And there's a, there is of course the issue of unvaccinated NBA players. Uh, we'll, we'll get into all of that in a bit, but for now, let's jump in with our guest and uh, talk about public health in Milwaukee. We are joined today by Lillian Payne. Lillian is currently the Director for Technical Assistance for the National Birth Equity Collaborative. She was the inaugural Chief of Staff with the City of Milwaukee Health Department, and she coordinated the COVID-19 response and positioned Milwaukee and Wisconsin as innovation leaders in tracking pandemic data. Ms. Payne received a Master of Public Health degree as a premier graduate of the UW-Milwaukee Zilber School of Public Health, and she's a Milwaukee native and resident. So in 2018, Ms. Payne was instrumental in authoring the Wisconsin Public Health Association Racism is a Public Health Crisis Resolution. She facilitated the resolution's adoption in Milwaukee, which was the first municipality to do so. She currently holds the consecutive record for WPHA presidential citation for these contributions, the first in 2019 as a member of the Racial Equity Workgroup, and the second in 2020 as an individual. Ms. Payne is an appointed member of the Governor's Health Equity Council, and the YWCA of Southeastern Wisconsin awarded her Face of the Future for Public Health in 2020. Lillian, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to Beyond Basketball. Thanks for having me. Yes, this is so great. Big fan of Lillian Payne and have uh, had the opportunity to uh, watch from afar, but kind of nearby, just all the awesome work that she's been up to over the last decade or so. And it's it's been indeed both impressive and encouraging um, to see uh, all the the important work you've been doing. And and I can't wait to talk about the uh, racism as a public health movement in a lot of respects, because that's that's so central to a lot of what we're dealing with over the years and and currently. So welcome, Lillian. It's a pleasure. Thank you. What are you working on nowadays? What are the projects that you're, you're focused on in this moment? That's a great question. And the way I'll answer that is, it's like I'm revisiting um, my public health roots. I always had an interest and not the language for it until I got my master's degree for community health and mother-child relationships. So maternal and child health, community health, in the sense of how policies impact day-to-day well-being and how people navigate structures and the treatment that they receive in those structures as they enter and exit them, which is also known as equity and access to opportunity and resources. And, you know, I want to just get right to it. Can can you talk us through how we, we got to the place where racism as a public health issue, as a public health crisis, came into fruition. Can, can you get us through that process as, as efficiently as possible and, and talk about what all that means? And we'll, we'll ask you a few other questions and prompts along the way, but let's get into that. Sure. Um, when I've been asked this question before, I always say, are you asking with the hat that I was wearing at the time? Or are you asking of like my life's work and life journey? 
because I think a lot of the experiences I had influenced and it empowered me to be bold in certain spaces and to be a truth teller. So I think I'll say when I arrived in these systems, my introduction to public health um, as a undergrad was with the Area Health Education Center. And I was part of their community health internship program, the first mm. cohort. And um, that introduced me to the need to be members of professional organizations. And the public health professional organization in Wisconsin was the Wisconsin Public Health Association. So I was an undergrad from fall of 2000 to fall of 2005. And I was pre-med psychology with a minor in communication, made it to OCHEM and was like, no, mm -mm. can't do it. <laughs> can't do this. This is not life. This this is not my calling. <laughs> so, <laughs> so with that, um, understanding the diligence and understanding the dedication it takes to be in a professional field, air quotes, professional field, I was like, you, you have to know people. Mm -hmm. And it's relationship-based. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And my impression at the time of the Wisconsin Public Health Association was it's a cold, not welcoming place for mm. someone like me. Yeah. And the focus was really on, at the time, cardiovascular health and dental hygiene. And I was like, this is the breadth and depth of public health right now? I mean, I, I know what I'm experiencing when I go to the doctor, and I know what I experienced growing up based on the state um, safety net programs yeah. I benefited from and the free lunch programs yeah. I benefited from. I'm like, mm -hmm. these are people making decisions, but how you get in the room? Like, right. and you got to pay to be a member? <laughs> I was like, who does that? That's what I said as an undergrad, right? That's a loose, <laughs> so, that's a loose definition of public. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you are a specific kind of public, right? Right, right. <laughs> where you have no problem entering exiting systems and you have access to all the resources. You know, you got some legacy on your side, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was like, if this is the field and I'm not going into medicine, what is my role? What can I do? Yeah. And who are my people? Right. So the more exposure I got and the more questions I ask, every mentor of mine will tell you, you ask great Question. That Lillian asked great questions, but she was always ahead of her time. Mm -hmm. Or she was thinking about things that people weren't ready for. So consistently hearing that, you're ahead of your time. People aren't ready to think this way or do things this way. When it was my turn, when I was at the table and I got a title and some alphabets and I could be at the <laughs> head of the table as the at-large director, I was like, I'm going to calculate my risks. Add it up. What's the return on investment? How much harm can be done to me? versus how much change can happen beyond me, beyond when I'm in this role. So I took that experience and context of, this is not where it's at for me for, for medicine. And that's at the time, again, public health was very biomedical, um, expanded to biopsychosocial and then expanded to community-based. Mm -hmm. So when it was in the community-based space, I was just taking it all in. Um, one of those seminal documentaries that they have us watch when we start out in our journey in public health is Unnatural Causes. And I, I saw that and I was like, okay, this is it. Not psychology, not clinical psychology, not medicine. But I need to be in public health. This, they're speaking the language. They are touching on my experience 
and they know how to talk to those people that aren't so welcoming. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. a combination of all that led to me being able to voice what my experience was. The people that I built relationships with that trusted me and that were in rooms I couldn't be in but could lift up my concerns supported me. It was a lot of inside-outside strategy, um, having that narrative of the lived experience, and then, you know, got the training so I know the tools so I can speak the language, present the tools, and then add a, a different spin on how to really do problem-solving that centers equity in those most in need. Awesome. So it was really focused on a membership-based organization of people that were in positions to affect policy. And if I could touch them, that's what I thought, then maybe they could take that back to where they work. And when they talk about structural change and structural harm, they will remember that within WPHA, you know, we had these conversations. We did the case studies. We did the assessments. And now we have some potential ideas and policies to try out. Maybe that can transfer and translate into where they worked. That's all I was thinking. Right. I didn't want anyone to have the experience I had um, growing up within that professional system. When you say, not you specifically, when when we hear the words racism is a public health issue crisis, can you explain that so that the random average person who hears it gets what that means? I mean, when you share with us and you use the nomenclature of your craft, we, we can follow it. We, we know what you're talking about. But let's, let's make it plain. Racism as a public health crisis, tell us what that means. For sure. I did not come up with that. Mm-hmm. That's a public health, um, the language. Yeah. So a crisis. There's a difference between a crisis, an emergency, a pandemic, and an endemic. Mm. So th- those are basic public health nomenclature. Yeah. And um, in order for something to count as an emergency or a crisis, in the materials that I provided, Mm -hmm. you should have a copy of the resolution. And the resolution spells that out. And let's see if I could lift up some language from there based on how it was defined. Because that's another thing in my profession. Um, Unlike how this all has rolled out, you give credit to people who said it first and did it first. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And Dr. Kamara Jones, who is a public health shero of mine, is someone I modeled myself after and followed in my growing up in public health. And we used her definition of Mm -hmm. racism, but we used a social epidemiologist's definition for crisis. So within the resolution, racism is a, Dr. Kamara Jones said, Um, Racism is a social system with multiple dimensions. So individual racism, which is internalized or interpersonal, and systemic racism, which is institutional structural. And it is a system, racism is a system of structuring opportunity and assigning value based on the social interpretation of how one looks. So that's based on how you look, Mm -hmm. um, features, skin tone, height, weight, that unfairly disadvantages some individuals and communities and unfairly advantages other individuals and communities and saps the strength of the whole society through the waste of human resources. Mm-hmm. Waste of human resources, yeah. the emotional labor, right. the inability to thrive and just survive 
that's the sapping of energy and strength and and brilliance, right? Because you're putting up with or trying to navigate other people's internalized stuff that turns into institutional because said people are in positions to affect policy. Right. What are some of the ways you've seen systemic racism manifesting in our public health? And uh, more broadly, what are what are the threads that connect that to disparities we're seeing in in housing and, and education and so on? That's a million dollar question, right? And I think recent and current example is the pandemic response itself. Right. Hmm. The first year, like who was dying first? And not saying that it hasn't flipped or the trends haven't changed, but at the beginning, yeah. in 2020, March, <laughs> for some people, mm-hmm. people knew about it in December 2019, right? But when it was public, everybody knew it. It mm-hmm. was touching people. People were dying. Who was dying first? And it was African-American, um, our elders, older men, so it's like 65 and above. And they had underlying conditions. And the underlying conditions is a technical term for they already had some stuff going on. Mm-hmm. So they probably had heart troubles. They probably had asthma. They probably had high blood pressure. Diagnoses that were being treated that were complicated and added on, compounded with the pandemic. Those mm-hmm. who were, those were the folks dying first. And it's people, when we look back at the data now, two years later, it's people that didn't have a medical home. So when they started experiencing symptoms, did they have a provider that they trusted? Did they feel like they could pay for a bill if they got a bill when they went into these healthcare systems, entered whether through the emergency room or a doctor appointment? Think of just that, touch that, hold that. And then now thinking of our school systems and in-person schooling and mask mandates. Who can get a quality mask? Right? And if you can afford it, it, are you saying, I need to pay my water bill versus I need to get a quality mask versus I don't feel good, but I need to make money. I mean, just being able to go grocery shopping too. Mm -hmm. I think back in the beginning of the first year of the pandemic, like how people didn't have groceries and if they were um, someone that tested positive, how could you get a order because an emergency order was in place mm-hmm. within um, Milwaukee County. How could you tell someone to stay home with a legal document telling them you tested positive, you need to isolate or you need to quarantine if they didn't have an address or they move so frequently and you, mm-hmm. the system can't keep up with a transient yeah. person? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Now, now Lillian, we got to talk about a little bit of basketball. Of course. <laughs> we we we'll give the we'll give the listeners a break. We'll come back around to some of this public health stuff. John, let's 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 get Lillian talking about these bucks. Absolutely. Because uh, unlike us, Lillian, you're actually a Milwaukee native. Yes. So, um unfortunately, the bucks were probably pretty bad for more than they were pretty good in your lifetime. <laughs> but I was wondering, uh what are what are some of the memories you have of earlier Milwaukee Bucks teams before this? Some would call it miraculous. Some would say long overdue championship. The, the pre-Giannis years. <laughs> pre I like yeah, exactly. that. I like the pre-Giannis years. I really do. And, um, like, I, growing up, a basketball game or a baseball game was a luxury. 
and I remember getting free tickets because I was on the honor roll, like for example. So like mm -hmm. um, going mm -hmm. to a, my first professional game, it it had to have been like a, a something related to an after school program or, you know, again, being on honor roll and being with a cohort of people going. And mm -hmm. basketball for me was like, oh, that's something my big brother goes and plays or people care about stats and things. So it's only exciting for me when it's rivalry teams that I recognize. And I only recognize sure. people by colors, not their team names. <laughs> right. <laughs> I was like, oh, the purples and the whites are playing against the reds and the blues. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. So for me, um, basketball was what other people enjoyed. And I enjoyed being around other people watching them play basketball. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And then has that changed at all in the, the post-Giannis years? Yeah. Mm, I've gone to a couple of games, but that's only because I'm gifted tickets. Like, yeah. Yeah. And it, it was exciting to um, see the people that are on magazine covers or on the news in real time. It's like, wow, that person's really tall. Or those Lopez brothers with the hair, like being able to say right, names right. now, like I can put names and it's not colors anymore. You know? Right. Right. That's good. That's good. Well, and you know, the energy that winning professional sports teams bring to cities uh, is hard to explain. You know, it's just in a short period of time, all of a sudden we now have a deer district. We now have a set aside, space for congregating specifically to enjoy the Milwaukee Bucks, you know, and that that's only arrived in the last few years. That's know? only arrived since the pandemic, right? Right. Yeah. I, that's exactly yeah. where we were going together. with that. <laughs> it's not safe together. <laughs> uh, so, you know, when you, when you look around and you see what's happening with professional sports, uh, and whether it's basketball arenas being filled, Football stadiums, though outdoors, most of them being filled. Uh, deer districts. Uh, what's what's your sort of knee jerk response, given your expertise? With my public health hat. Yeah. With Another your person hat. that I hope your audience con considers researching, in addition to Dr. Kamara Jones, is Dr. John A. Powell. Out of Stanford. Yes, the othering Absolutely. and belonging work. Mm -hmm. So I think of because of who I am gentrification and I think of how that having that energy and that excitement and a place to gather again works for those that are able to afford to gather safely are mm -hmm. able to afford to spend mm -hmm. um, additional funds for entertainment and have transportation that's what I think of when I think of who is this being built for and what does that mean for the surrounding families that have lived there for generations that may be approached to be bought out or try to stay in those neighborhoods as the tax properties increase? And so you, you, you're obviously engaging these very important economic considerations around this broader umbrella of public health. Oh, you have to. Yeah. Say more about that, if you don't mind, because I think that's, a, that's an important and yet sophisticated analysis of public health. I think it's comprehensive. Public health itself is transdisciplinary and started out in the, the womb of social work and that social work mm -hmm. movement 
And when we talk about, again, jargon from public health, social determinants of health, we're talking about where someone lives, where someone plays, where someone works, and then thinking of how people get fulfilled, spiritually speaking. That's, that's a whole person, right? And I, I don't think you can just think of class alone or think of someone's socioeconomic status when things are racialized all the time. So it's taking into consideration what it means to show up where you work, play, pray, and live. Mm -hmm. And we love to break things down by zip codes in public health. What zip code is the all those gathering places in, right? Yeah, talk about it. <laughs> What's the Absolutely. demographic of those zip codes? <laughs> right. Or the neighboring zip code. Right? True. What, what zip code borders, you know, because there's that immediate impact as well. Uh, would you ever in your early career, prior to March, April, May of 2020, would you ever have guessed that topics like vaccinations, masks, and other public health and public safety approaches would become so politicized? Did you see any of this public health politicization on the horizon at all? We saw it and experienced it, even if you weren't in public health. Think mm. of emergency responses or lack of, right? Mm. When Hurricane Katrina mm. happened. Right. Think of the the AIDS endemic. Yeah. yeah. Mm. That's not so far back. Right. Right. And so the, the, the idea that these issues have become so politicized is part of the public health professionals world you you all understand this well what have we learned in the pandemic yeah folks calculate the risk and want to take that risk of being a truth teller right and really centering opportunities and protections right you have a number of folks that have resigned from public health leadership roles and then you have a number of folks that tried to do the right thing and were ostracized or forced to resign. And that's public. I'm not making that up. You can go back no, and look at governors. At you can right, look right. at um, yeah. epidemiologists. Yeah. I mean, look at the CDC. Right. Yeah. The NFL and the NBA are both, they're selling out stadiums. NFL playoffs started last week, and those were the first playoff games with full crowds in two years. The NBA resumed full seating. And this is all amidst sometimes confusing, sometimes contradictory announcements from health agencies and the CDC. Why do you think that scientific and public health concerns have been the second or third or fourth consideration in COVID policymaking? So there's stuff that happens publicly, and then there's stuff that happens privately behind closed doors. And mm -hmm. you have to think of who's organizing the table and who's sitting at the head of it. And I want to believe that there are public health champions that have stuck it out in this pandemic to be in leadership roles, to be in the room, to be at the table, that are speaking truth to power and with scientific facts. I think it comes down to who has the final say in those rooms and then what becomes public. And we also have to think of people's mental health during this pandemic I don't know what normal meant before, and I don't know what normal means now, but for some people, it, it was normal to go to football games and basketball games and 
it was normal to have overcrowded areas of celebration. And we can look at data now that masks worked, right? Right. And right. getting vaccinated and boosted works. So is that responsibility on the individual or is it on the system and the structure that supports the gathering and pays for that experience of football and yeah. basketball? Yeah. And that looks different everywhere. And it looks different yeah. at the beginning of the pandemic to where we're at now. Yeah. So much good stuff. Obviously, we don't have a clear or we don't have a national strategy. We could probably make the argument we don't have a state strategy. We could probably make the argument we don't have or we no longer have a, a local strategy. How, how do we grapple with a pandemic if there's no coordinated plan or no coordinated set of strategies that we can adopt? I guess the question is, what in the world are we going to do? Are we just stuck with this forever now? Like, you know, what are your, what are some of your thoughts about the lack of what is obviously um, a plan to address this? Right. I think we're in the thick of it with mm -hmm. all of these waves, but we can learn from history. And that's the question. Are we going to choose to learn from history? Think of what we take for granted now. Do as many people get polio? <laughs> Right. Do as many people get smallpox or tetanus mm -hmm. or hepatitis? Yeah. That's because there was a coordinated effort and there are policies that support a certain level of public health. Right. Because it has been a lesson from the past and there's evidence to support that those strategies result in better health outcomes, right? It's how long do people want to influence narrative about what works, I think. And then it's also challenging folks to get curious, right, about science and to get curious about public health and to maybe consider being more engaged outside of presidential elections. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, as a historian, um, two things happen pretty consistently. One, people assume that you are a historian of all human existence. And as an extension of that, people will typically ask me questions that there's absolutely no way I could have that answer. And they probably know that I don't have that answer going in. Like, well, in 1852, what did? And it's like, come on. You know, like, <laughs> you really right. think I got that answer? Uh, but I play along sometimes. And what, what often occurs is a, a richer conversation about context. I always say that really a historian is building context. We, we, we think more about the context of how something emerges and, and all the threads on it. How do you grapple with so many people who are now their own versions of epidemiologists, virologists, and everything because of something that they saw on the internet or because of a video they saw on Facebook or because of a TikTok video? And I'm asking you personally as an expert, what, what do you do in those circumstances? Because I'm sure people... Folks you might know, friends, family, you know, like... Family. One of my family members <laughs> called me a zombie because I got the vaccine. I was like, bruh, yeah. I'm a zombie now to you? What is the definition of a zombie? You see me living and breathing <laughs> right here. You knew me before I got the vaccine. I, what is the difference? <laughs> it was sad. Yeah. 
it is. It hurts my heart, but I've mm. I have to accept it. It hurts my heart that I don't get to see all of my um, great nieces and nephews because some of their parents chose not to get vaccinated or their parents got vaccinated, but my child's not getting vaccinated. And it's different when it's family. Like, you yeah, know, uh, when you're a public figure, it's like you better be all the wiser and know what's in your sphere of influence to do just that. And then thinking of what public health means, it's doing all the work behind the scenes or think like think of it as a group project. You do the work, all the work behind the scenes, but everyone gets an A. Did everyone contribute to getting an A? Not, that's not how it always works in a group. And right. then you, you may have a spokesperson that didn't help at all, but they happy going out there talking about, we did this. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and that that's public health. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's my experience. I don't want to generalize, but that that's public health from right. what I've experienced. And for me, you reconcile, and I'm still working on that. Like, was it worth it? Is it worth it? And then if people are not ready, you come to a place where I'm sorry they're not ready. Let me put that energy on me then. Mm-hmm. I hope I answered your question. Oh, you you did. This is, this is, I have, you know, my own conversations with family members about the vaccine. It's it particularly about the vaccine, uh, and it's been, you know, one of those things where your your love of family has to carry you forward, you know. And and I I try to bring that same compassion to people who aren't family, which is much more challenging to do, obviously. But it is it is tough when you have a professional expertise that gets questioned because somebody found this things over here that's not even what we would consider an approved source <laughs> you know uh and it, it it's tough it really is or you get hit with yeah but that's white supremacy the fact that right. you got oh, a yeah. degree you don't always get supremacy. that yeah. <laughs> like- <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah mm-hmm. right that when in doubt you know <laughs> oh you and like structure a- and order that's white supremacy you right. need to decolonize <laughs> what do you think you know like, bro, we talking about saving your life with a vaccine right now. That's the the tough part is that the United States has a history of scientific racism. Yes. Right? Hmm. We know that there is a, a long history of uh, medical racism, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that continues. I, I've even had my own experiences with doctors over the years that really tested my own patients, you know. Yeah. And so it's... It's hard to have these conversations because you can't turn away from that racist past. But like you said, context Mm -hmm. is important. It is. One of the first examples is Tuskegee, right? You know, and these are folks who are somewhat knowledgeable. They're knowledgeable enough to understand the importance of Tuskegee and its longstanding impact around research, medical community and all that. But this is not Tuskegee, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, how do you work through that nuance and the nuance is there is a history of racism there is a reason to be skeptical right but it's not identical <laughs> you know it's not the exact same scenario it's not the same historical moment how do you how do you play with some of those ideas that's a good question and i don't have an answer let me be really clear i don't have a good response myself i'm actually 
wondering if we can share some strategies because it's it's tough, you know. Yeah, right. It's really difficult. Right. And and then I think of family and then I think of non-family. And mm-hmm. you can talk a certain way to family, right? You can. And and no cuz you know you love each other, right? You yeah. know at the end of the day, you might disagree, but you love each other, right? That's not always the case community focused or public figure abilities. And what I remember doing is once people could be virtual or remote, that's not the case for public health folks. Still out here in these COVID streets trying to save Mm -hmm. lives. But when people had more time to think and reflect during the first year of the pandemic because things were shut down, the social media platform and podcasts and then the the news getting it in all forms and formats and that's the only thing that came out was tuskegee like that's the only defense people had right um that made me want to understand and that's how a curious mind approaches public health what's the Mm -hmm. root cause of that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. why and asking why not to be like a smart aleck or to wait for my turn to jump in at a conversation with bullet points, but to really ask why. And what I've learned and what I hope I continue to develop is compassionate activism. And that's holding space for people as they figure shit out. Can I say that? Oh, hell yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Absolutely. Figure your shit out so you can unpack it. Once you do a little bit more work, we can have a more deliberate conversation. And it's all in how you say that. You can say that to family, like, go on somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. You need to cool off, or I can't talk to you right now because I don't know who right. you are. Right. Or when right. <laughs> engaging on social media, whew, so many times I had to do that. It's um, understanding how that person thinks and what they do respect and listen to. And finding um, an influencer or a magazine they trust mm. and... Mm-hmm using their language, using images they understand, and trying to make it fun. Yeah. And just as bad, air quotes, of an influence that TikTok and Instagram or Twitter had, that's just as much fun and just as informational it has been, too. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. I was in a conversation with a family member of mine about the role the Illuminati is playing with the vaccine. And I explained to them they got vaccinated first. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> and they got vaccinated first. Ah, that's great. Well, thank you for sharing all that. And it's, you know, so much of this pandemic is really, as much as we're talking about public health, what's driving so much of this, obviously, is our personal lives, right? What, what's happening to our loved ones, the, the limitations imposed although there don't appear to be any more limitations imposed (laughs) anywhere in the country. (laughs) Uh, But uh, a significant disruption in in what we might have called normal at one time. And so it's the personal components of all this that really makes public health so important. And we thank you for all the, the leadership and direction that you provided along the way in that process. And to that end, tell us about some of the successes because it's tough Certainly, uh, over the last couple of years, it's going to continue to be tough moving forward. But it hasn't been an experience where we didn't see folks do some pretty remarkable stuff. Yeah. You know? 
Talk about some of that stuff, please, so that we can keep that in perspective as well. It's like you, you and, and by you, I mean general audience, average citizen. I think they may have a better relationship with their local small business people, right? As a result mm. of the pandemic. Sure. Mm. Places that didn't deliver before deliver now. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's a plus. Right. And then the pandemic really put a light to what it means to be a healthcare worker. Yeah. And what it means to be a public health worker and the difference between those two and who really counts as your frontline essential people. It's it's shifted some perspectives. And I hope we keep some of that moving forward. I hope that some of that perspective stays with us. Right. I also thought that now, you know, Milwaukee and Wisconsin is, is unique in this respect and that is the the commitment to locally grown, locally produced. Like that is a an aesthetic and a, a value here locally that I think people may take for granted. Uh, you can go to other places and you're not really you don't have that same commitment to local, uh, especially when we get into produce and, you know, urban farming, generally speaking. Yeah, urban you know, farming. All of that, you know. And I tell you that what actually gave me just a little bit of comfort was supply chain issues being what they might be. There are a lot of folks here around the state that we know we can count on for some good local produce. We yeah. know that we get good local dairy, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so as I began to try to make sense of all this, I began to say to myself, you know, this question of farm to table, mm-hmm. we don't even use that language here as often as we should, as often as we could. Farm to table is where we need to be headed anyway, where we were already headed. And let's just really make a, let's lean into that a little bit. Yeah. More, you know, and that, that helped I look forward to getting local produce. I look forward to getting, you know, eggs from local farms and all of that, more so than I had. I'd always looked for it, but this this reaffirmed the importance of it. Back to basics, right? <laughs> right, right. Let me just go to the market, you know, like the actual market, you know. <laughs> yeah. And real life skills made you question, mm-hmm. can I survive? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> What do I need to survive? (laughs) Yeah. Or what kind of mutual aid network do I need to be a part of where they can help me survive? Yeah, the the reassertion of mutual aid has been so profound and so welcoming and warming in in a very cold and hostile stretch. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so, So Rob has this strategy, and I think it's a good strategy, but we would like your opinion as a public health expert. Rob, could you describe your stadium being filled by municipality? My my, uh, public health expertise suggests that stadiums of any kind, public spaces of any kind, should only be filled to the percentage of vaccinated people in the area. Say more about that. Well, for example, in the greater, let's say Milwaukee County. Mm -hmm. If Milwaukee County collectively is, and I should know this number and I... Maybe you know what percentage of Milwaukee County is vaccinated. Let's say in total that number is 60%. I'm going to mm-hmm. guess. Then Fiserv can only be filled up to 60% capacity. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. What is it now? American Family Insurance Stadium. <laughs> it's only 60%. That's all you get. You know. Yeah. 
I don't know if that matters, <laughs> but that's my that's my plan. It I'm does matter. <laughs> it does matter, and I think it's really at this stage convincing or getting someone those who are business focused and driven, not necessarily vaccine status driven, to think that way. I walked into a restaurant just the other day to get a to-go order, and it was packed. Not even the servers were wearing masks. And you know how it is now when you hear somebody cough. You you hear a cough, that's a COVID cough. Right? You know, it's been like that for two years now. You hear a cough, and it's turn, you look, and it's a couple people coughing, and it's like, man, okay. And I began to wonder, too, like, maybe there is a circuit, you know, where whereas I look for places that have a, a vaccine requirement and a mask requirement. I wonder if other people look for places that don't have any. I would assume they probably do. Yeah. You know? I mean, think yeah. of, again, earlier in the pandemic, places had to have COVID safety plans in place in order to function at the limited rate of ratio to people versus ratio mm-hmm. of space, you know? I think it, at this point, and I'm not, these are public arguments, and I'm yeah. sure others have discussed these things where people can find recordings of public figures discussing these things. What it comes down to personal rights and then say there is protection with an emergency order or there a business does require masks and vaccines, it's who's going to enforce it. Right. And do you charge people? And if you look back in the beginning of the pandemic, those people getting fees, the demographic matched up with um, low income BIPOC. Mm -hmm. So thinking again of how racism shows up, even in enforcement of something that is supposed to save lives, it's how do you do it? Right. And who's paying for it? Yeah. And the enforcement component is so critical, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That disparity, those disparities. Yeah. Right. Uh, big picture was for the average person listening to this podcast, what would you, what what can we do moving forward? How can we be engaged with some of the efforts you're working on? Um, and what can we do uh, to help out? That's a, that's very kind of you to ask. And um, that also sounds like a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, um, The first thing people can do is educate themselves. Like when they hear something, like think of Blue's Clues, you know, they make it elementary and not in a condescending way. Like look for some clues. Does this add up? Who said that? And who are they to say that? And then if if that checks, if the smell test says it's, it's roses, like then move forward. And I'm saying that when you're picking someone to follow on Twitter, when you have um, information from a social media resource or even documented resources, it's like do your Blue's Clues analysis. That's my ask. And then when thinking of how to help or how to support, what's your reason for doing it? Are you doing it just so you can look like a savior and post it on social media saying, I did this, I helped this person? Or are you doing it to say, join me in helping this group of people or this cause, and this is how you can join me in doing this cause? That's not little, because everyone has a sphere of influence, so that's Mm kind of major. 
You don't have to have a public title to think about that. I mean, think of your church community or your hobby community. It's little things that have big impact. Sure, sure, absolutely, absolutely. Wow, thank you so very much, Lily and Payne. It's been a pleasure. It's so awesome to speak with you. Thank you for taking your time with us. Thanks for having me. And thanks for considering me someone to listen to, because not everyone listens to me. (laughs) (laughs) And that's okay. That's okay. (laughs) I hear that, but we appreciate your voice. Thank you. You know, that was a very, very important conversation. We thank Lillian Payne for joining us and really shedding uh, so much of her expertise and wisdom, uh, given what we're dealing with with the pandemic. You know, we, we have to always, again, go back to where we were, make some sense of where we've been, and, mm-hmm. and you know, to really move us into a conversation of where we are today. And, and we are here today, obviously, to talk about basketball. And this particular issue of the pandemic is is permeated sports. It's it's a part of youth sports. You know, we, we're all kind of trying to make sense of the world, and we and we rely on sports for so much. You know, and and so it's it's important for us to give it its due. And we are here to talk about the Milwaukee Bucks, the world champion Milwaukee Bucks. Let us not forget. That's really no, the sorry. spirit that drives our conversation. And so let's uh, let's talk about the Bucks. How do, how the boys doing these days? Well, from my first-hand uh, glimpse I got, they're, they're looking very good. It's been tough with the injuries. You know, we, we haven't seen Brooke Lopez since the opening game. Bobby Portis has stepped up in Brooke's place. He's been doing work. He's, he's out there playing aggressive defense. We got... Uh, Bobby being Bobby. <laughs> Bobby's being Bobby. You know, he's having fun out there. Yeah. I'll say it was an interesting uh, game to watch because Portland's having kind of a rough season despite their very talented roster. They're also dealing with a lot of injuries. So uh, unfortunately I missed out on seeing Dame Lillard, but you know, CJ McCollum had a big game and uh, it was, it was interesting to see the Bucks have to, to play against a hungry team like that. Right. right. Uh, a team with something to prove. There were some mistakes, but I think one interesting thing about the Bucks is the mental strength the team has to overcome those mistakes. You know, they, they never stay down. Something goes wrong. They're right back at it. They're very steady. You know, they are a very steady team. Highs aren't too high. The lows aren't too low. They just continue chopping wood. And that's what's really impressive to watch. You know, you have a team of of guys who obviously have gelled because of the the success of last season. And they Mm -hmm. kind of limped their way into this season, but they really smoothed it out. The machine seems to be running pretty efficiently right now. And so as we get into the second half of the season, as we all know, uh, teams want to want to start to get hot, get the defense right. squared away, and we're seeing the Bucks put a lot of that together uh, right at the midpoint of the season, which is where we want to be. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I think part of that steadiness comes from the guys who've been around for the championship run, and uh, the new faces have fit in perfectly. Some of them are young guys new right. to the league. You know, right. We have our Grayson Allen's coming in, playing good yeah. defense, hitting a yeah. lot of threes. And uh, the veteran leadership from guys like George Hill, who uh, gotta you know, have George Hill back in town. Nap gotta town. have George Hill back yeah. in town. Broad Ripple, Ripple Rockets. <laughs> your fellow Indianapolis, or uh, excuse me, your fellow Indiana guy. 
Yeah, he's in Indianapolis. You had it right. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, but you know, you, you mentioned the veteran leadership, and I think that that's with a league that feels so young. A team that has steady veteran play is still going to be the team that you look to to have a good playoff run. You know, of course, injuries matter. You want to make sure you mm-hmm. get as, as full of a complement of a squad as you can going into the playoffs. But, you know, when you get into those tough away games, those road games in the playoffs, you're going to need those veterans to, to step up. And we've got we've got a solid core right now. Yeah. And, and you know, of course, we really miss P.J. Tucker. He was yeah. such a key part of that run. Yeah. Um, no offense to Dante DiVincenzo, but I'm kind of glad PJ was the fifth starter instead of Dante. Well, for that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick at that a little bit, Jahan. Okay. Because I think what Dante brings is a similar level of toughness. Obviously, PJ is, is uh, carved out of a special kind of toughness, but what Dante brings mm-hmm. is more athleticism, a little bit more energy, uh, along with some toughness. And so, what we, what we might lose with pj we're also picking up some stuff here with dante because of how uh, exciting he is to to watch you know he's just a lot of fun one of my favorite bucks okay yeah well you know the big ragu he's he's earned his place on the squad there's no doubting that no doubt and you know guys like that have key playoff experience and that's going to come in handy because you know we got kind of lucky last year we didn't have the deepest bench and as, as sad as i am to see guys like pj leave I think, uh, for at least from a bench perspective, we have a, a stronger squad than we did last year. Yeah, well, and depending on who's starting, of course, Jordan Noir's taking big shots. It's always great to have a Wesley yeah. Matthews on the floor, you know, at any point. Mark Alum. Oh, man, Dylan Eagles. And, and let's not forget about Pat Connaughton over there, you know. Of course, always working hard. Yeah, absolutely. And so we, we're, we're filling out a, a, a solid bench. You know, when you can go that deep on an NBA roster and, and really not lose a lot, uh, that's just important commodity that the Bucks are bringing to what's going to be, I think, another really impressive playoff run. I hope so, yeah. And, and I think it's important to point out, when you win a championship, a lot of ink gets spilled about those teams. But I think at the end of the day, you know, we have to remember the Bucks are a small market team, not a hot free agent destination, takes a lot of skill, a lot of hard work, um, and a lot of luck to assemble a team like that in a city like Milwaukee. Yeah, I think we have an advantage that other teams don't necessarily have in the way this team was built. Sure. You know, in our, our first conversation, I was a little frustrated over how the Bucks I thought, were being overlooked. And I think that that has actually played into the Bucks' hands, you know, because mm-hmm. even though we're mm-hmm. sitting second in the East, Still looking like the team to beat in the East, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, this team still isn't garnering a lot of attention. And and I think that that's great, you know, because, you know, these guys can just keep playing basketball. They don't have to worry about all of the other issues that other teams are grappling with, whether it's COVID-related, you know, whether it's what your superstars are up to, you know. Uh, in some ways, this team is, is flying under the radar, and that's not the worst scenario for a team to make a second playoff and title run. Absolutely, yeah. That's fine by us. And speaking of best in the East, I think a team we all expected to be yeah. there would, would be the Brooklyn Nets. Absolutely. And uh, Brooklyn Nets are they're, they're not really there. They're, they're having a, an okay season, but 
there's some strife in Brooklyn, and and part of that comes from yeah. one Mr. Kyrie Irving. Kyrie Irving is playing his basketball in New York City, and that is a city like many other cities that has a vaccine mandate for for New York residents. Athletes that play indoors have they have to have uh, proof of at least one vaccine shot, and because other cities have similar requirements, that meant you know Kyrie Irving couldn't play most of the season. Right. He actually uh, sat out a good part of it, and um, I think it was just a slew of basketball injuries as well as uh, COVID striking the league as hard as it did with the Omicron variant that the Nets, they kind of had to cave for lack of a better way of putting it, but they brought Kyrie back. And um, there's a tough balance there because from a public health perspective, from a PR perspective, of course, we want to uh, promote the vaccine. At the same time, there's the argument that it's bad for the sport if one of the best players in the league at this moment isn't playing. You know, as a fan of basketball, but as someone who's concerned about public health, it, it, it can be frustrating to have to sit through all of this and the conversations one way and the other. But Kyrie has been pretty adamant about it. Uh, according to NBC Sports, Kyrie said that, I know that I'll be there every day no matter what and just be present for my teammates as one of the leaders on the team. And I think that highlights both his dedication to the team and his, his desire not to politicize this. Yeah. But of course, you know, these things get so politicized because that's just the, the nature of the media that and, and the culture that we live in. Yeah. And, you know, for whatever it's worth, uh, he has been very consistent in his messaging and his principles mm-hmm. hasn't wavered. He's He's been clear about it from the beginning. And I think it's important for us to, to parcel out some nuances here. You know, these are some of the most finely tuned athletes in the world. And we know right. that their physical capabilities of resisting COVID, for example, the, the public health folks have suggested that, you know, without pre-existing conditions being in this kind of shape, they, they're probably not going to experience some of the more devastating impacts of the virus. And, and that's, that's sure. we assume to be true. Uh, so that is indeed something that we have to acknowledge. And we have to also acknowledge that where we are today with questions around the vaccine and COVID, while we're still struggling with it, it's a, it's a very different moment. So there is some kind of understanding of how to manage this personally for our families and the like. Uh, and so, so the, these issues are, are with us as well. The, the complexities of it all, as you mentioned, are with us as well. And because of a media frenzy that is professional sports on an ongoing basis, and because of the unfortunate politicizing of this, we, we, we haven't had a chance to really have a healthy public discourse about it. And in some ways, you know, the NBA has done a great job of helping to create a healthier conversation about COVID in ways that other sports haven't really been vocal about it. Hats off to the players for not spiraling into some of the messiness of it, knowing mm-hmm. full well that some of them are in favor of vaccines. Most of them have been vaccinated, something like 95% or something. And, you know, they, yeah. you, you haven't seen any ridiculous back and forth about the guys who haven't been vaccinated. And so that that's that's at least role modeling some some decent approaches to, to folks that are in essentially the same organization. Having said that, though, it still presents us with some important questions about 
public health and how folks who are in the public eye are in the middle of our public health conversations because the average person is not an NBA player, right? The average person is not Unfortunately, no. Right, unfortunately, yeah, absolutely. And so really the issues we're, we're most concerned about are not with folks who are on some opposite end of a curve and wouldn't necessarily have a, the same sort of experiences. The day-to-day experiences for so many of us is still one that is very frightening, uh, that's mm-hmm. filled with trepidation. And quite honestly, we're, we're all kind of in some guesswork still, you know. And so vaccines have become one of the few ways that we've been able to achieve a little bit of peace of mind uh, during all of this. And so all of that is coming together, Jahan, and making this still a very challenging conversation. And as you pointed out with our, our professional sports, we want to see these great athletes do what they do for us on a regular basis, which is help us escape, you know, help us yeah. just forget about the difficulties in life. And at the same time as fans, we've got to be mindful of the fact that they are not only providing us with that kind of a catharsis and that kind of entertainment, uh, but they're also putting themselves at risk in doing so, you know? And so compassion is still central to how we need to think about all of this. Of course, yeah. And to highlight something you were saying, the NBA has done just a tremendous job handling all of this stuff, comparatively at least. But the uh, season prior to the Bucks winning the championship, the NBA had that bubble. The bubble, they yeah. Sent all those playoff teams to Disney, and they locked them all up. And a lot of leagues were were hesitant to take measures right. like that. But the NBA took it very seriously. They put everyone in that bubble, and uh, it worked. It did work. It absolutely did. Yeah. Yeah. No one got sick. We had some entertaining basketball uh, at a time where we all really needed some entertainment, and uh, it was a great success. And yeah. Uh, and nowadays, uh, in, in this current moment, according to CNN, 97% of NBA players are vaccinated. Yeah. 60% of players have received a booster shot. You know, when we're talking about unvaccinated players, of course, uh, we get a lot of coverage of them. But at the end of the day, this is uh, like a dozen guys. Right. As you mentioned with Kyrie, you know, he's he's been consistent and he's not politicizing it. I think uh, we, we sometimes don't appreciate that because these players get paid so much, we don't appreciate that they don't really have much job security, you know, and they have a very small window in which they can play professional basketball. Mm-hmm. So compassion really is is uh, very important to yeah. approaching these issues and talking about them in, in the context of the NBA and society at large. Absolutely. And I, and I think the, the players' safety is important, but I also think one key issue is whether or not these stadiums should be filled to the degree that they are. And, yeah, you know, the, that, that to me is a much more important conversation than the individual players and the choices that they're making, mm-hmm. given so many of the players in the NBA are vaccinated. If we have then crowds made up of folks who's, I mean, we would assume the percentage of vaccinated folks might mirror the local environment that the, the team plays in, if, if indeed that's the case, we're probably having far too many people inside arenas without masks who are not vaccinated, you know? And right. if that's the case, then that presents another set of concerns that all professionals uh, franchises need to really be held accountable for. I just don't know that I feel comfortable or believe it's appropriate to have completely filled stadiums 
given what we're still grappling with, with society at large, with um, COVID rates. Yeah, that was definitely one of the, the downsides of going to this game in Portland is Portland does have a vaccine mandate. They, they were checking for that information uh, at the entrance, but it was still, you know, pretty much a sold out game. And it was crowded to the point where I, I like to get a beer or a hot dog or something, but I just, I was double masked. I kept them on the whole time. Right. It's just, uh, we're getting closer, but we're not really there yet. And yeah. uh, I think, I think your, your idea of attendance being directly tied to municipalities, vaccination rates is, there's a lot of ideas out there that could help. And I, do think that uh, that would be an interesting one for teams to take moving forward but well it's interesting that the nba teams right so the so the issue is is complicated here so the nba is an organization each of the units of the franchises in that organization are then bound by the policies of their local community or municipality so they're not consistent right you know right. so that that presents some other challenges that need to be addressed as well. It's great to hear that the folks in Portland require proof of vaccination. I think that's fair. I think that's completely fair. It would be interesting to see more NBA franchises move to something like that. But of course, that puts us back squarely into the politicizing of the issue. Mm -hmm. And as we heard Mm -hmm. earlier, the ways that our public health folks have been uh, treated with hostility, uh, attacked verbally for right. uh, trying to chart a path of safety, of public health and public safety. And and so it, it just, it's unfortunate that we can't get some uniformity because we all know that more of that would help us get further and further out of this crisis. Yeah, I think you're right. And another thought I want to put out there is that amidst all of this individualization and politicization, our conversation with Ms. Payne was very helpful in reminding us that, you know, these are systemic problems and they require systemic solutions. Right. A broader, deeper problem than what a random person or a couple of random people are doing. And the way out of this, you know, whether it's increasing funding for public health, whether it's making it easier for the global community, as well as our own communities to have access to the vaccine, whether it's uh, uplifting more, more voices, from the public health world in, in media coverage of this, mm-hmm. whatever the case may be, we, we really do need to approach this as a community. You know, it takes all of us to get out of this. Well, and you know, pandemic fatigue cannot then equate into public health fatigue. And that's that's where of we're course. slipping, yeah. right? You know, it's yeah. one thing to be tired of having to deal with the pandemic. It's a, it's a completely other issue uh, to grow tired of being as safe as we possibly can. And we've got to muster the energy uh, to stay committed to public safety uh, because mm-hmm. if not, this is just going to linger on longer and longer. You know, we can't keep failing the test. <laughs> yeah. We've got the yeah. answers now. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, there's no redos. we got to get right. on this. In light of that, I think... Uh, I want to again refer people to the uh, the notes of this episode as well as our website. You can find those same links. But uh, we're going to be sharing a lot of information that uh, Ms. Payne was kind enough to share with us. Check that stuff out. Get something out of it, and you know, share it with other people. Pass it on. Make sure the people in your life, you know, whether they're vaccinated or not, whether they're taking it seriously or not, you know, just make sure everyone knows what they need to know. And I think we'll be okay. 
Yeah, absolutely. Again, this is beyond basketball. Uh, we're <laughs> celebrating the Bucks, but we're also talking about all these other important social, political issues that uh, intersect with sports. And, and obviously, this pandemic is, is the issue of our time. Yeah, on and off the court. Uh, I'll leave us out on a note here of uh, our, our very own MVP, finals MVP, MVP of our hearts, Giannis Antetokounmpo, uh, in regards to the vaccine. He is vaccinated, and he said when asked about it, I did what was best for me and my family to stay protected. For me, I put everything down, and I feel it was the best decision for me to be safe with my kids. Uh, I hope people listen and stay safe out there. Yeah. Shouts out to the Bucks. Shouts out to the big fella. Absolutely. Yeah. And before we leave you, we just want to uh, give a great big thanks to the guy providing the music for this podcast. Another another Indiana guy. Yeah, in that town. Ron Johnson. What's going on, Ron Johnson? <laughs> not not that Ron Johnson. Not, not that, that Ron, Ron Johnson. Johnson. No. Ronald Ronald E. Johnson. Let me get it right. Ronald E. Johnson. That's right. The good Ron Johnson. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Appreciate the music, brother. Yeah, it's good stuff. And if you want to listen to uh, those tracks in full, or if you want to listen to some of the other music uh, Ron has put out there, go to soundcloud.com slash Chaco Geek. C-H-O-C-O Geek. And uh, support Ron. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, that'll do it for this episode of Beyond Basketball. Thank you so much for listening. Subscribe, tell your friends, and uh, we'll see you next time. That's right. Let's go Bucks.